Thanks, Dave uh, and Steve. Thanks for coming. Uh, <clears throat> so, last week, if we looked, I don't, I don't know who was here and who, who wasn't. Last week, we looked uh, at uh, the overall story of the narrative of this book from creation to the new creation. Uh, we called it the story of the Bible. It was the first one of this series of three. Um, <clears throat> we decided, or at least I think we decided, that it tells us about God, it tells us about the world, and it tells us about ourselves. We saw that it was the story of a relationship between God and his people, and it was a story of redemption and of healing the relationship which had become broken. And we concluded, or at least I did, that if we want to understand what the Bible has to tell us today, then we have to take into account of the overall story. And if we are looking at a particular passage, we have to look at how that passage fits in to the overall story. Tonight, we're going to take a different angle. We're going to look a little bit about the different types of books and literature in the Bible. Actually, you can throw up the first slide. Um, It's a slide that we could have done with last week, actually. Um, So tonight, we're going to look at the different types of literature in the Bible. Uh, as I mentioned this morning, I've, I've, done, I've enjoyed reading around this. It's a subject that's been interesting to me. I've read some really interesting bits and pieces. There's loads of really interesting material that we would be really excited at. But I have struggled to put it into a form that would work tonight. So I think we've ended up with something that might be quite short and quite um, a, an end quite early. But that's, I guess, would be a change for me. So we'll see how it goes. Go on two more slides. Um, and then the, the, the one after that. Um, it's a terribly reproduced slide. But So we said literature. Now, we can use the word literature because, as we mentioned last week, this book that we have was not dictated by God to somebody who wrote down the words of God, and we have it either in stone or in parchment or anything else. Sometimes, maybe some parts of the church in the past and today have kind of treated it like that, and certainly some other faiths treat their book like that, but we don't. We have 66 books written, as we said last week, by different people at different times in different languages for different reasons. And they probably, I was thinking, they probably had no idea, many of them, most of them, that their writings were going to be determined to be the word of God and that we were going to end up pouring through them two or three thousand years later considering their words to be the inspired word of God. Uh, There's lots of different ways to break down the books. Uh, You've got, uh, and that's, that's one way, but you've got all sorts of different types of writing that these these people have written down. You've got, we talked last week, you've got historical narrative. We've got collections of songs and hymns and prayers. We've just sung one this evening. You've got a fairly explicit love poem in the, in the Song of Solomon. You've got legal texts in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. You've got writings of prophets. You've got a set of ancient wisdom literature in Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. In the New Testament, we've got four 
very different perspectives on the life and teaching of Jesus. We've got letters. We've got visions of John, um, bizarre visions which he was writing for the church. When you think about it, it really is a very odd and esoteric and varied group of books that don't immediately appear to fit together. As we said last week, it's not a particularly clear or useful way to set out a code or a constitution for a new religion. You've got a lot of different voices, a lot of different contexts, a lot of different concerns and even agendas in the human writing. Um, And I'm going to be maybe quote a little bit from time to time this evening from Walter Brueggemann, who I find very helpful in this. He very interestingly says, well, he's talking about the Old Testament, but the, the Bible, he says it does not and never intends to provide a coherent and comprehensive offer of God. In other words, it's not a systematic theology. Yet, we believe, and it's our, here's our starting point again, which I need to say, we believe that these writings, the outputs of all those different personalities, all those different people who wrote it with their different agendas and contexts and languages and all the rest, that their writings were inspired by God in a way that other writings aren't. And as tonight we're going to talk about and think about literature, we need to say something else because we're going to, we also have to believe that the group of people and I know there was more than one, who who looked through all the literature that there was and somehow decided that these books are the ones that are in and, and these books aren't, we have to believe that they were inspired just as much as the people who wrote them. Somehow, a group of people sat down and said, well, we'll have these four Gospels, but not these other ones. Uh, we're going to put in the Song of Solomon. Um, we're going to include Ecclesiastes. We're going to include Chronicles, even though it has almost the same story as, as Kings and Samuel. Somebody decided that these were in and that these were out, and, and these books then are elevated for us in a way that the books that weren't included aren't. So we're believing in the inspiration of the compilers as well as of the writers and the editors. Now, Brueggemann used a very interesting way to look at the Bible. He talked about the idea of testimony. And this is what, how I want to sort of to think about the thing tonight. His idea was that these books, all these different writings, ultimately this compilation, was what Israel wanted to say about God. Kind of as if it was in a court setting. They have decided that this and I know he's talking about Old Testament, but we effectively are talking about Israel in terms of the old and the new. This is the group of books that people have decided they want us to read in the future, or they wanted to act as their testimony to their understanding of God. It's a speech about God. And in a way, it represents Israel's growing and evolving discovery of who God is. I say growing and evolving because we kind of saw a bit last week, there is a gradual revelation in this. Abraham, go back to Abraham. Abraham was called in the desert. He was given the command of circumcision, but he wasn't given the the command of the law, and that wasn't given until later. Then the Mosaic law came. We had lots more information about God's values and God's interests. So we learned more about God from that. 
Later on, in the time of David, we had the new promises to David about his line, which, which were new, which were stronger, which, which gave us a different, uh, gave us some more information about God. Then we have Christ, who to the people who met him was the complete revelation of God himself. Um, to us, we only have snapshots of sayings and, and actions of, of the Christ, of the Jesus who was on earth. Um, but that was an even more complete revelation. Then beyond Christ, we had this discussion in the New Testament with Peter and then the apostles in Acts 15, working out that this message was no longer just for Israel, but was to be opened out to everybody, all people and all nations. So this book is a gradual revelation of how Israel, the group of people who were believers, understood God, an evolving discovery of who God is. So in the sense that we looked at this last week as a story almost from on high, God's story of creation, redemption, um, and all the rest. In one way, tonight, looking at it in a literary sense, we're looking almost from below, at a story from below. We're looking at Israel's growing and evolving discovery, as I've said, of who God is. So it's a kind of a, a story um, of Israel's understanding. So the collection of books that we have represents what Israel, as I've said, wanted us to know, wanted us or wanted to leave behind for us under the inspiration of God. So we've got a variety of voices which is mirrored in the, variety, in the varied collection of books that we've got built up gradually over time. A very rich resource of different ideas, revelation, conjecture, experience, prayer, celebration, disappointment in the real and concrete life of Israel and the early church. As we've said, written in different types of literature, range of writers, different personalities and interests. If we believe that this is God's word, this is a much higher view of revelation than if it had just been dictated on stone and handed down. Any omnipotent being could do that, but it takes someone with imagination to use the minds and imaginations and agendas and context of all those different writers and still end up with the word of God. It's much, much more exciting for us to read as a result, but it's much less easy to interpret. And I guess that's what we're supposed to be looking at tonight. So, one of the things that I kind of wanted to do, um, but we'll not really get to do all tonight, was to look at uh, some of the different types of literature that there is and look at an example and read some examples and think about how they functioned in their time and how we interpret those. But as I said this morning, that uh, would take too long. But just a couple, just a bit of a review um, or a bit of a sort of a jump in to some of the types of stuff that we've got. Um, I think I had these on a PowerPoint, but I don't anymore. Um, so I'm just going to read out a couple of passages. So first of all, narrative. It's the one we're familiar with, I guess, the most. Just listen to this, Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Very simple, very clear, beginning of the story of David and Bathsheba. Doesn't say explicitly what the writer thought about David, 
But by comparing the first line at the time when kings go off to war with the last line, but David remained in Jerusalem, there's a very strong implicit comment there about David that we see in what appears to be just a simple narrative piece. We'll come back to narrative uh, a little bit later. We've got Psalms, um, a collection of songs and hymns and prayers. We have used these throughout the church's history. We sang at least one this morning. We've sung one this evening. Um, Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. How awesome is the Lord Most High, the great King over all the earth. We're very familiar with that type of writing. That was from Psalm 47. Uh, We've got the Song of Solomon. We've got this love poem. Um, Chapter 1, verse 2 says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. I'm going to let Steve deal with that one uh, in the future. Almost the opposite of that, at least in in some ways, is the, the law and all the legal code that we've got, all these specific, very detailed stipulations on how Israel was to live in the desert uh, and in the land. So Leviticus 18, it says, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. To be honest, that's not a problem we have had in our household so far. The next one, of course, would be much more difficult for our household, Leviticus 11, chapter 7. And the pig, though it has a split hoof completely divided, does not chew the cud. It is therefore unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean. And there are lots of others uh, in the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that we could get into. Actually, I'm thinking of the next time of looking at the the Old Testament law. It's kind of not just a different type of genre or literature, it underpins a lot of what's written in the Old Testament and it's referred to a lot by Jesus and the writers in the New Testament. It's referred to by the prophets and it's referred to by a lot of the narrative. And it's also used in arguments today in all sorts of different ways. And I think we can't really ignore it. I kind of tried to squeeze it into tonight, but it didn't fit. It deserves a little bit more time. So we might have a look at that uh, next time. Uh, The prophets, Uh, we'll look at an example in a minute, but the prophetic writings uh, are are many, many books. A few of them are larger, and some of them are are much smaller. But again, writing to very different generations than us in very specific circumstances, often characterized by wild imagery, by drama, by, by, by stuff that we don't understand, but often coming back to a combined message of hope and judgment to the people that they were writing to. You've got wisdom literature, you've got the book of Job, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, books that deal with life and meaning and suffering that don't immediately seem to fit into the narrative that we talked about last week. Um, They don't fit in the timeline just as, as clearly as maybe we would like. And some of the 
the messages are a little bit contrary to some of the other messages, maybe, at least at first reading. Anyway, we've got the Gospels. We've mentioned Gospels. You've got these letters in the New Testament. You've got somehow the compilers have decided that a whole dose of letters written by a missionary, mostly, who was spent a lot of his time either being beaten up or arrested or thrown in, in and out of prison uh, as, he, as he preached around Asia, that the letters that he wrote to specific churches that were having specific problems were somehow to be brought into our word of God and, and therefore today we believe they hold value for us, um, which is very interesting and very important. And then it ends, of course, with the revelation. I don't know if any of you have been to Patmos. Um, we, we went there once a long time ago. It was very hot and very dusty. And this book was written by an old man who was exiled on that island and he saw visions and, and he had a message for the church. And again, they have decided that that is brought in to this book. So that is our Bible. And despite its richness, its diversity, its poetry, the place that it has had, certainly in the English language and literature, down through the ages, and despite the great truths that we believe it contains, it's still an exercise in faith, and it's a very important component of our faith to believe that this is God's inspired word. Because without, without it, we really don't have anything. Without this, we, we, we're just making stuff up. It's just our own feelings, our own ideas, our own opinions. So despite all the difficulty, we have to, uh, to face this and how it works. Anyway, I'm operating on the clock at the back, as opposed to the real time. Um, so rather than try and do something in all the different types of genre, what I thought would be more useful was we just take three uh, snapshots of three different types of writing, look at one example of each, and just see what we come up with. Um, and maybe any of the things that we don't... Well, any of the... I, I picked the easy ones. Any of the genres that... Uh, that we don't deal with tonight are maybe more difficult and I leave to others. But let's look at narrative again. I want to put up uh, 1 Kings chapter 10. Uh, it's a very interesting passage. The context here, <clears throat> you've got Solomon. King Solomon has just succeeded David as king over the 12 tribes. It's about a thousand years before Christ. He has been granted wisdom by the Lord. He's built the temple. And he's moved the ark into the temple for the first time. God has repeated his covenant promises to Solomon. And he's been visited by the Queen of Sheba. And this narrative follows that. It's part of a great, very strong tribute that's been written in the book of Kings about his reign. First Kings chapter 10. We'll not read it all, but I'll just read a couple of the bits in orange. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents not including the revenues from the merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. It then goes on to talk about the, the gold and some of the, the ways that it was built up in, the, in his palace. Nothing like it, the bottom, had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. The next slide just keeps going. Uh, King Solomon was richer in wis in, uh, greater in riches, riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. goes on to talk about the horses that he's got and the chariots. 
He's got silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. They even imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. What a fantastic king this was. The writer is getting very excited and lifting Solomon up. And you can feel the picture, picture of greatness and richness and wealth and pride, right? Well, let's read uh, the next slide, which is a little bit from the book of Deuteronomy, which was the legal code that was given to Israel way before Solomon, before they entered the land. There's a little section in it which the NIV has titled Rules for Having a King, um, which isn't in the original, but it's helpful. So it's got the rules for when Israel wants a king. So we'll go down to verse 16. The king, moreover must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make people return to Egypt to get more of them. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. Perhaps when we read the narrative in Kings in the light of this, we begin to see an implicit criticism of Solomon that we would have missed if we didn't know the book of Deuteronomy. That becomes more explicit, to be fair, In the next verses, in the king's passage, in the next chapter, where it begins to talk about his many foreign wives, and specifically then our explicitly criticizes him. But we mentioned last week, we're talking about narrative. We mentioned last week that the books of Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, are called by scholars the Deuteronomistic history. In other words, they view them as written and compiled from the particular theological perspective of the book of Deuteronomy. And the people who feature, the judges, the kings, the prophets, and the people, are all assessed through the perspective of how they obeyed the law or not. Disobedience, failure, and shortcomings were exposed, all serving as a record of the reminder, or a reminder to Israel of the need to follow God. So again, the point here is that the narrative that we read It's not just telling us the story. It's been crafted. It's been carefully written. It's been very carefully formed to say stuff. And some of the stuff we're going to miss because we're not the original readers. But this is one instance where we can pick up something that the readers were trying to, the writers were trying to say, um, which is very interesting. So the point there, well, it also happens in Chronicles. We don't have time to look at examples, but the book of Chronicles, I don't know if I mentioned last week, but you know this anyway, covers more or less the same period as Samuel and Kings, but it's written from a very different perspective, uh, uh, where, where Samuel and Kings are written from the perspective of obedience or not. Chronicles is very much written from the perspective of the Davidic line, David and Solomon, and, and their, their children. And scholars will tell us that, it, that Chronicles was maybe written during or after the exile, and that one of its key purposes was to remind the exiles of the, of the, the strength of God's revelation to David and Solomon, and remind them that that line and those promises were strong and were continuing. Again, narrative um, with a purpose. So, we'll not bang on on that. That's a... a that's that's just something to remember as we read the stories. There are so many, I mean, if we need a Hebrew scholar, but there are so many uh, 
crafted pieces of narrative that if you take out the story of Nathan, when Nathan came to King David after the adultery with Bathsheba and brought him the story of the sheep, the, the guy that had, had killed the poor man's sheep, when you look at the Hebrew, apparently, and build that up, it's been extremely carefully crafted together. So anyway, the point is um, that this stuff has been very carefully written, even the passages that just tell us the story. So the second uh, type of writing I wanted to look at was this idea of the prophetic vision. Now, we'd love to look at the prophets. I mean, actually to look at the message of the prophets is also very, very interesting. And this guy, Brueggemann, has also written a lot of interesting stuff. But just for this particular example, I've picked up one particular vision of one of the prophets. So the context here, before we read it, it's Ezekiel. Uh, he's one of the exiles, right? So he's in Babylon. On this instance, I think maybe it's his birthday. It's, it's, his, it's the anniversary of when he became a priest, maybe his birthday. He's wandering around the canals, the irrigation canals of the Iraqi desert. And he's wondering, like the other, he's wondering, like the other exiles, what on earth has happened? How could God let his people down so badly? And he sees this vision. Let's have a quick read. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning, lightning and surrounded by brilliant lights. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the, head, the hands of a man, and all four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched each other, and everyone went straight ahead, and they did not turn when they moved. And it goes on and on. You've got faces of eagles and calves and lions and oxes, all set up on a set of wheels, and there's wheels within wheels, and the wheels don't move, they go. And um, it's very detailed vision, and if you Google, you can find... I didn't, deliberately didn't put up any of the images that I found because I just thought that they took away from, from the text rather than added to it. It's relentless detail in, in this vision of Ezekiel, and it's meaningless to us. It doesn't make any sense to us. And people today are very tempted, and in the past too, to read all sorts of meanings into it, what the creatures were, what the wheels were. But the imagery in this passage would have been clear to Ezekiel's readers. I've picked this passage because it's one of the instances where we can know what the imagery and what the, the, what, or what the pictures refer to. This imagery refers to images that would have been known to the exiles from the panoply of, of Babylonian gods. So this, this image, this thing, vision coming towards Ezekiel looked like something from the Babylonian religion. And in fact, he probably was terrified and thought that their gods were coming to destroy him. Imagery that would have been understood by the people who this book was written for um, and would have made it even more surprising when it turned out later in the chapter, that this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In other words, this vision, which looked like the Babylonian gods, was actually Israel's God in Iraq, not dead in Jerusalem, having been vanquished 
by the Babylonians, but here in enemy territory inside Babylon. And that is the vision that launches the book of Ezekiel and also launches a very interesting missiological lesson to us on the universality of Israel's God, which is of great relevance for us today in the 21st century. But anyway, the point is that prophetic writings often use imagery for dramatic effect or to emphasize a point. And our church has had in the past and today a a tremendous tendency to prize open some of this imagery and to force it to address questions that the original audience wasn't asking. This, This isn't anything other than what it would have meant for the people who would have heard it the first time. It's what I said. Revelation's another example, which I'm not going to dwell on tonight. It's another one for Steve to deal with. But as a teenager, I read the late great planet Earth and all sorts of other stuff to do with Revelation and the end times. I, for at least a year, was firm in my belief that Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, was the Antichrist. And it was very clear. I could have proved it to you from, I don't know, Daniel or I don't know where. Um, But people are trying, often try to prize out meaning from passages, especially this imagery in the prophets, that loses sight of the original context. One of the one of the things I was doing as I was preparing for this was Googling for some images to try and get the timeline. If you put in biblical timeline into Google, you get a lot of very frightening detail about the end times, which comes from stuff in Revelation and Daniel that is unlikely to have been written to map out the end times for us. Um, so the point is that this imagery and the, the detail that we read today would have, would have meant something to the original writer and the readers. Some of it, to be honest, we've probably lost. Years ago, I taught a night class somewhere um, on, on the book of Revelation, and I, we used other material, and um, we didn't do it ourselves. But I was amazed at how much of the stuff in Revelation that I had been taught meant something else, could be explained to mean something that the, orig- that the original hearers, readers, in first century persecution in the Roman Empire in Asia, which is where John says he's writing when he writes, opens the book of Revelation, how, how clearly those could be explained without having to refer to complicated timelines of the future. Anyway, the point again is that the overall messages that these prophets were, 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 were trying to convey, no, the, the point is that, the, uh, that they were using imagery to convey messages. Now, the messages that they were trying to convey are often very clear to us. They were usually speaking of judgment and hope to the people in specific contexts. If you flick back to the first slide, Richard. Uh, Oh, we don't need to get into this. But there's a group of prophets that were writing before the exile in the run-up to the exile. Some prophets that were writing in the exile and some were writing after and in the writings of each of those, you can, you can see what they were trying to say to the people at the specific context uh, that they were, they were writing to. They were often this twin message of judgment and warnings against corruption and wickedness, especially in the run-up to the exile, but also matched with that encouragement of how to trust the Lord today and in the future, no matter how bad things seem. So the messages are clear to us, but some of the imagery isn't necessarily. That's the point. 
on the prophetic vision. So, moving on to the third and last uh, point, which, uh, which we don't have a slide for. So just stick up the Old Testament timeline again, and it'll help us to cite where some of this stuff comes. I've called it prayers of complaint. Um, I wanted to look lastly at this type of writing, because this is what has come out for me most in the readings of the last uh, week or two. Um, it's not specifically a type of, it's not like a literary genre, but it's something that I think it's useful to think about. Prayers which question God is a very rich theme that runs through the Bible, especially the Old Testament. In this book, um, so this is, this is a book called Theology of the Old Testament. It's a, you couldn't think of a more dry title. But it's, this has been one of the most devotional and, and alive books that I've ever read. It's, it's Brueggemann. Um, but one of the things he says, uh, how he, he deals with the Old Testament, he talks about what he calls Israel's core testimony. That's kind of what we've been talking about last week. Um, the Psalms of praise, the songs of deliverance, the stories of redemption, the calling of the people, the blessing of Abraham and the nation, rescue, hope, etc. All the things that we're familiar with. The psalm that we sang tonight comes from right in the middle of this core testimony. Israel um, worshipping and celebrating their God. Great. And that's, that's what this book's all about. But Brueggemann also finds what he calls a counter-testimony in the writings, where Israel questions God. Sometimes they're not just as sure in some passages as they are in some others. You find some of these writings in some of the Psalms. You've got some in the prayers of some of the prophets. You've got a little bit in Ecclesiastes and Job, where just God is being questioned. The song we sang this morning that, that Gary introduced by Lightning Hopkins in a way, fell into that category a little bit, pleading with God, asking for help, asking where God is. Uh, and it's, this is a type of writing that asks questions. Um, so, and some of the questions are, are you find time and time again. So one of the questions is, how long? Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul? And have sorrow in my heart all day long. Psalm 35. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from these ravages and my life from the lions. Psalm 6 verse 3. My soul also is struck with terror while you, O Lord, how long? He can't even finish the sentence in that psalm, whatever's going on. One of the other questions is why? Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Psalm 44, rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget your, our affliction and oppression? There's many, many other examples in the Psalms and other types of questions as well. We also see this type of writing in, in it's called Jeremiah's Complaint. In Jeremiah chapter 20, we've got this very strong prayer which begins, O Lord, you have deceived me 
Actually, it's a very, very strong verb in the Hebrew, apparently. You have deceived me, and I was deceived. You have overpowered me, and you have prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. And it goes on. It's a very extreme and savage way to address God. Jeremiah had just been released from being imprisoned. He was feeling fairly low, obviously, at being the only one giving the difficult message of judgment to the people around him, while other prophets were having a nice, happy, positive message to give, which wasn't from God. The middle section of this chapter returns to a very faithful praise, but it ends again with Jeremiah wishing he hadn't been born. A very, very strong, whining, complaining, uh, accusing prayer to God. The book of Job we'll not get into, but Job, the question that the book of Job asks is, is God reliable? So these are Israel's very honest questions that they're asking God in real life. They're not content, this, the people who, who's responsible for this book, are not content with words and promises and blessings and, 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 and the happy clappy songs that, that, that we do. They're pointing out in this writing to God the dire straits that they were in and letting him know how they felt about him, not shying away from reality but expecting God to do something. This, this type of writing isn't born from doubt. It's born from almost their solid faith that God has said that he will help them, so he jolly well better come and help them. They're almost demanding it. Brueggemann, uh, one of the things he says is that Israel is profoundly aware of the incongruity between their core claims of covenantal faith, all the happy psalms and the psalms and the songs and all of that, between the incongruity between the core claims and the lived experience of its life, which was defeat in battle, exile, only partial restoration, all sorts of unfulfilled promises. And in other words, Israel wasn't going to settle for words and promises and theory they wanted action and rescue and forgiveness and vindication and victory from whatever was troubling them at the time. I find these, writing, these writings in the Bible very powerful. Um, the Bible allows us in these to be honest and to ask questions of God. I think it gives us permission to complain to God, to be angry at him. It almost requires us to be expecting God to answer us and expecting God to be real, and expecting us to hope in God. We've got time just to look at one final example of that. Psalm, oh, Psalm 88, I think actually there is a slide, the last slide, Psalm 88, is another very powerful example of this type of writing. It's a summons to God that receives no answer. In most of the other Psalms where you get this type of complaining and this type of asking God, where is he? There's a resolution at the end. God has come and saved me and rescued us, thanks to God. This one doesn't resolve. Um, and it's very, whatever the situation is, it's very serious. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I've missed out a bit, but it starts, you are the one who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. In the last section, this is on the right-hand side, I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. 
Why do you reject me and hide your face from me? And then it ends, your wrath has swept over me. Just when you think it's going to resolve, your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That's the way it ends. And yet, so it's a summons that receives no answer. There's no resolution. God, in this psalm, does not come. And yet, the psalmist is continuing to pray and hope and trust. Verse 1, day and night I cry out to you. Verse 13, in the morning my prayer comes before you. So the story of this psalm is that it's being prayed daily again and again. Um, Brueggemann again sees this as an, he calls it an act of profound need, intense indignation, and relentless, insistent hope. Not giving up, praying the thing again and again and again. God didn't answer, prayed again. He didn't answer, prayed again, because that hope in God is there. Sometimes we feel God is far away, not answering. And I think, as we've said, I think these passages like this allow us to feel like that. And they give us permission to question where God is, why things are so difficult. The beauty of this psalm is that the psalmist, despite the lack of answers, gets up again the next day and asks the same questions of God and and hopes and continues to hope. Anyway, uh, we'll stop there. We didn't get uh, all the different types of of writings covered, but I kind of hope we've had a little bit of a snapshot of some of the different types of voices that are in this book. We've got victory, we've got warning, We've got celebration, we've got questioning, we've got despair, there's resolution, there's death, and there's resurrection. The same stuff that we talked about last week, creation, fall, redemption, New Jerusalem, such a variety of things that are being said in this. All true, but not necessarily all 100% consistent with each other all the time. Lots of things we didn't look at. We didn't look at the wisdom literature. Didn't look at the Gospels, the Epistles, Revelation, but very interesting, I think, to remind ourselves of the depth and complexity and honesty and beauty of this book. It's more than just a repository of pithy verses to hang our beliefs on. So a closing comment just as we finish. As I've gone through this and as I've thought more about this, in some ways I think a rediscovery of of how we read this book Uh, in this type of approach, it should be very appealing to young people today. Today's generation has no interest in a prescribed code of how to live life, a list of rules and regulations that we've often turned this book into. It's more attractive to them and, uh, and, and to us, and more honest maybe, to see it as a story, a journey, an adventure in faith. It's us, as we read it, journeying with God's people, as we all together tentatively explore God and push him and test him and question him and worship him and follow him and see how reliable he really is. The early church called themselves or were called by others followers of the way and that's a nice hint of the idea of this journey of discovery of of the writers of this and of us the readers and also the worshippers and followers all 
journeying together to try and work out who God is and how he relates to us. We'll stop there. I hope you've got something of the picture of the richness of this book. It's not just a list of books, um, not just of the variety of books that are in it, but of the themes and the messages. And as it all adds up in bits and pieces, the picture that emerges of this great God who is creative and imaginative and real um, and who we continue to explore together every week in this place. So, as we just reflect on that, let's be silent for a minute and then I'll pray. Father, we do worship you as the God who has revealed himself to us in our lives and in creation and in things that we see around us and the beauty and the love and the, and the people and the goodness that there is in this world, but also as a God who has revealed himself to us in the writings of these men uh, from so long ago. We thank you for the uh, way that you've done this. We thank you for the, the the, the tools that are in this book to help us to understand life. We thank you for, as we've already prayed, the freedom in this country that we can read it openly on the, in the buses, in parks. Uh, we, can, we can preach from it in, and we can just talk about it in work in a way that many, many people can't in other places. We do pray that you will help us in our lives to continue to explore this as we read it on our own and as we read it together and as we talk about it in our home groups and as we think about it in ourselves and as we, 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 we get it preached to us and as we think about it and just talk about it and live it, may you reveal yourself to us more and more each day and may we have the strength and the grace to respond to you and what you're saying to us in all the different ways that you do that. We thank you again for the chance to think about it and we do pray that you give us the love that that the writer of, of the Psalms had for your word and for reading it and meditating on it and getting to know you through it. In Jesus' name. Amen.